podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. And welcome back to the West Ham Breakdown after an incredible run of games of West Ham over the Christmas period. I hope you all had a very happy Christmas and a good new year. I'm joined by Cal Goodall, as always, and I'm Jack Elderton. Um, did you get a good Christmas presents this year? Have a good new year? You get on the lash? <laughs> did I get on the lash? Uh, yes, I think I was on the lash the whole time. Uh, it would seem. <laughs> um, it felt like it, certainly. Um yeah, I got some good bits and bobs. Uh, a 2-0 win against Arsenal, that was a good one. Uh, <laughs> that was the best one for all of us, wasn't it? <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's hard It's hard to think. To be fair. It was all little bits and, and bobs, um, stuff that you wouldn't buy for yourself. But yeah, it was just nice. I spent a lot of time travelling, saw all my family, um, all my various family all over the country. So that was good. But it's one of them, classic case of coming away from the period of... Uh, Christmas and New Year's feeling like I haven't had any of the rest that you're supposed to get over the two weeks because I've been tearing up and down the country on trains. So, um, but yeah, I can't complain. It was nice. How about you? Yeah, mine was mine was really good. Very relaxed, very easy. Um, I was fortunate not to be running around on trains too much. That's my January. <laughs> uh, <laughs> whole lot of late Christmases um, throughout throughout January. So um, hopefully roast to come with that because that'll make it tolerable um but yeah no i've had a really really nice time enjoyed new year's first time i actually went out to watch the fireworks um oh, nice which was quite sweet uh not not ticketed uh just <laughs> sneaking out my back door yeah where, where i've got a view <laughs> i was gonna so, say you must be able to see it pretty well from your flat yeah yeah so um so that was really nice actually had a really nice time and um like you said been massively helped by some brilliant West Ham performances, good results that leave us in an excellent uh, position just gone the halfway point. Um, we did record a podcast talking about the games that came before this. So that would have been, uh, let me think, would it be Man United? And uh, I'm not sure what the other game would have been. Would it have been Wolves? Yeah, I think so. Uh, but anyway, we, we, we did a podcast on those and I am going to take clips from that pod um, and insert them into this pod as we go through the different things that we're talking about, focusing on the Arsenal and Brighton games uh, in this one. Um, it's obviously been a bit of a hectic period, I'm sure, as you can understand. Um, so we're kind of meshing two pods together to try and get some kind of megapod of happy, good West Ham content together uh, for you to enjoy. Um, but the first thing to talk about, really, I think we'll launch into the Arsenal game first and then we're going to talk in depth about the Brian game because there were some interesting things that came out of that that we wanted to explore. Um, but the main theme of both and, and clearly the theme of the Arsenal game is that the low block was back in action. Um, and in many ways, I'm not surprised. I think I said on this pod that we went through a, a long period of games that maybe came in a not great order for us because they didn't suit us brilliantly. A lot of the teams we were playing didn't suit us brilliantly. And now we've gone through a similar period of a lot of games that arguably do suit us really, really well. Um, And actually, the most impressive thing about the results over that period is possibly 
putting them all together rather than any of the individual performances, although Arsenal was exceptional and one of our best performances in terms of commitment, effort levels, and just refusing to concede um, over the entire Moyes period. It's being able to put together the whole string over such a congested um, run of of games, congested period for us. but to sort of drill into 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 the recent fixtures, it's the low block that's been so impressive. It's the way that we've um, executed really those those tactics, which has been possibly some of the best work we've done over the entire Moyes period. It's looking back at like the highlights of twenty 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 one when we were a really dynamic, threatening, counter attacking team, almost irrepressible really. If you gave us the ball and you you didn't have a set rest defence that was comfortable going up against players like Jesse Lingard and Michel Antonio in his best form or Jared Bowen. We've got something, we've had something similar really this season and that's meshed together really nicely of late with Bowen, Kudus and, and Pakatar. Um more impressively than that even though we've done the last two without Pakatar, really. I mean, he had a hugely important, important impact on the Arsenal game for, for half an hour, but we didn't have him after that point and managed to do a good job beyond that. But one of the names that I think we should come to first and speak about an issue and apology to is Angelo Ogbonna, who's done, <laughs> he's done incredibly well in the last two games, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah, he has been fantastic. And I suppose he's, yeah, yeah, we probably do own an apology, actually. But I, in a sense, we did say that large parts of the reason that he was getting criticised by us was not because he's a terrible defender it was just that he is physically so beyond being able to play in anything that isn't a defensive low block back in the depths of his own penalty area and when he's asked to do that then he's fine because he has all the intangibles that a good centre-back needs he's got all the experience he's a great leader he marshals the line well he reads space well he knows when to step up and out he's a he's very good in the air um he's good on the deck so all of those things whether it's yeah like i say getting involved in ground jewels blocking shots which is probably one of the more important things uh, in in these few games in terms of last ditch blocks and throwing his body in front of things that is not surprising that he's good at that he's got great pedigree in the game he's played at the highest level and and he's very very not only well respected but i imagine well listened to on the pitch as well in terms of how long he's been at the club and sort of the respect that he garners from his teammates so i think yeah it it certainly does suit him to play in these games where we are going to have 27% 32% possession um and yeah that's great but <laughs> long term uh how sustainable is that is, is is a bigger question of course that i'm sure we'll come to at some point but um but yeah we've got to give him his dues because there was a lot of players that were integral to that success but i think in terms of expectations and surpassing them i don't think there was any other player on the pitch that uh, that is more deserving of credit no absolutely i think he's the one that's definitely gone above and beyond what was expected over the last couple of games i think you make a good point about um his physical abilities and what he's limited to in terms of where he can perform to this level and maybe we have been a little bit helped by the fact that arsenal's wingers are not performing brilliantly um at the moment they're going through a definite fallow period um and similarly against uh brighton brighton are missing their most important and dynamic wide players. So in terms of those two teams really being able to turn us and get in behind, that's where if you were a fan of either of those teams, you'd say they really let themselves down is that they weren't able to 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 do that effectively. And if you're looking at what Liverpool were able to do and why Ogbonna maybe looked so uncomfortable in that game is because Liverpool consistently turned, does consistently found yep. opportunities to get in behind. Um, 
that then forces your defensive line even deeper reactively. You don't step out aggressively enough. And then you get the situations that Liverpool got where they get distant shots that aren't pressured, um, that you aren't able to block and are able to, to, to finish from range. Partly worth saying as well, they've got the best distance finishers probably in the, div- in the division. I mean, they've got a <laughs> yeah. really excellent set of players who can put the ball in from 25 plus yards on a more regular basis than most of the other players in the entire division. I mean, except for guys like Kevin De Bruyne, they've got probably three or four of the top distance finishers in the in the league. Um, so those two things combine to make them not, you know, <laughs> not easy to, to low block out um, and not easy for a defender like Ogbonna to, to, to cope with. But yeah, um, in the circumstances, admittedly, they were maybe pretty perfect for him in, in, in the conditions that in the condition that he's in right now in those circumstances he did really really well um and someone else that we've got to talk about um because he's not getting anywhere near as much praise because of the performances of Ogbonna and Ogbonna deserves it but Dinos Mavropanos yeah I'm gonna drop one a oh, wow uh, uh, the wow is coming back to the pod <laughs> yeah yes I I I enjoyed this very much he has done very well since coming into the first team, hasn't he? Yep. Yeah, I've been super impressed. Um, I think I, there was never really uh, much of a question mark with regards to his progressive ability. I think we'd seen that definitely when he was at Stuttgart and and his ability not only to pass out from deep and sort of find people in the channels, but also to carry out when we need to disrupt a press and there isn't a pass on. And he he showed that early in his West Ham career as well, at times scarily so. I think we saw it against United and stuff where he was doing heel chops on the edge of his box and thankfully we weren't punished for those. But also with that composure, I think the benefits that it brings far outweigh the occasional hairy moments. And the more freedom you give him to try those, the greater will be rewarded and the less likely those hairy moments are to occur because he'll start to choose his moments more wisely and stuff like that. And I think that composure, when you are faced with significant waves of pressure, having moments where he gets on the ball and does a keepy-uppy in the air and flicks the ball over and then plays out from the back just to sort of reset, that is... <laughs> you can't, yeah, you can't um, you can't ask for much more than that, really. And then when you add in the fact that he, I would say, had probably his best sort of... Moy's defensive display in these in these games in terms of Agreed. defending his box and sort of question marks that we've had have been over his ability to compete aerially against some of the more physical strikers in the Premier League. Um, and I thought when Ferguson came on, he handled him pretty well. Uh, there was a few pop shots that Ferguson got, but they went unpunished. Um, but by and large, he stuck to him well and gave him a good battle. And I think that is a really good step in the right direction in terms of not only continuing to deliver in the areas that we already thought he was good at, but also to improve in the areas that Moyes centre-backs need to be good at um, where we weren't necessarily sure that he was a perfect fit in ways that maybe a Gerd on the other side didn't show quite so quickly in terms of transitioning from a possession style that is very composed, being a progressive force, but not necessarily hitting the nail on the head in terms of the Moyes, like, absolute essentials. Whereas Mavropanos has very quickly seemed to step into that role and really start to grow into it. Yeah, I think two things for me that are really worth mentioning with with Mavropanos. One, when we talk about his progressive ability, often we've seen centre-backs perform really well with long balls, with switches into the final third. What I really like with him is his pass selection. He he picks really good options. Um, It's not just, I can hit a diagonal into the final third. He plays the ball to feet in good positions between the lines regularly. He also switches the ball across the back line at the right speed 
one of the big frustrations when you struggle with press resistance, when you don't have press resistant players in that area of the pitch is if people move the ball too slowly, take too much time on the ball. He doesn't, he moves it quickly. He'll skip out passes, which is a breath of fresh air. Um, so you don't need to go to the left centre back to access a left back. He will just ping straight into yeah. the left back's feet, which gives people time, helps us an awful lot when we're playing out. Um, so that's worth saying for me. And then the second thing is his aggression. Um, and I always thought that was going to be potentially difficult to match up with Moyes because we're so keen to drop off defensively yeah. and he wants to step out. His instinct is always to step out. He seems to be working out the, the right timing, the right moments to do it, the moments not to do it. And I thought Brighton was a really good example of that. I know Brighton got some really good opportunities later in the game. We'll talk about how that came about in the second half of the pod. Um, but the way that he handles, I mean, one of the, the major threats that Brighton have, right, is is having strikers that drop off. You know, you start with two strikers on the pitch. They had Jao Pedro and, and Danny Welbeck for this one. And... Um, you always know that one or both are going to regularly drop in and try and receive in, in deeper areas, drag centre-backs out, create space for the wide men. Again, it's, I have to repeat, it's not as effective when you're wide men. One of them is James Milner. Like, it's not going to be the same as when you've got Kara Matoma on the, on the left wing because your ability to capitalise on those moments where you do access a striker in space and they do flick the ball onto the left winger are completely different when that's Milner to when it's Matoma. But... I thought we handled that fairly well, as with the first game when we were talking more about Alvarez dropping between the centre-backs and managing those players dropping dropping off into space. Alvarez did that really well. I mean, his performance against Brighton was top, top draw. He was brilliant yep. in that match. One of his best performances at West Ham so far. But Mavropanos was really good as well. Stepped out of the defensive line. And even if he's not winning the ball, because he didn't win the ball that much in those moments, his pressure forced the ball back almost every time it would you know the striker wouldn't even really be able to take a touch it's just a one first touch ball straight back in the into the defense which helps us out so so much it stops the game from being played around our box uh, and allows us to keep the game more in the middle of the pitch and and in areas actually where we saw a lot in the first half people like Pablo Fornells or Thomas Suchek winning it back and giving us opportunities to then get into the final third ourselves. Something that I don't think we did particularly effectively in this game. We're going to talk about that as well um, next and um, um, how it became more obvious really how much we missed players like Pakatar and, and Kudas. Before we move on to attacking and, 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 and how that maybe didn't function to its best level, we also wanted to talk about Ariola and just say that He's put in some really great performances. His performance against Brighton, again, after a top performance against them in the first half of the season, he's done another one um, against them at the start of the second half of the season. And um, and just say, kind of to the, to the point that I made on the pod previously as well, is that these games work for him perfectly when you need a keeper to be pulling off reaction saves, when you need a keeper who can keep the ball out from distant shots. You, Arioli's your guy, and I think, I really hope I can't see it happening, but because we've got two such good keepers, I really, really hope in the second half of the season, when we play Brentford, maybe when we play, I don't know, Luton, and when, maybe when we play Sheffield United, that Fabianski could come in for those fixtures just because how many balls are going to be played into our box, yeah. how many crosses are going to be played into our box. And that is an area where Areola is weaker and it's not that he can't handle those games. I think we can almost protect him from losing confidence, maybe, or looking, 
more shaky and upsetting the defensive line. We can protect ourselves from that by bringing Fabianski in for those couple of fixtures a season where Ariola maybe isn't the guy that you want when he is going to be suited to what we're doing most of the time. Yeah, no, 100%. And I think that the, the data from the last two games kind of sums it up perfectly in the sense that I think he faced 16 shots, obviously of varying quality. So obviously kept them all out, um, but kept out 2.7 post-shot XG. So he's basically kept, he's won as points single-handedly by by keeping out. Um, yeah, 2.7 uh, post-shot expected goals. And some of the saves were brilliant. There was a couple of really, really good saves um, against Brighton. But Whilst the shortstopping performance was great, he did face eight crosses into the box against Brighton and didn't manage to claim a single one of them. So I think that kind of highlights the the weakness there. And like you say, when you're going to come across games like, like you say, Luton whipping balls into the box via Alfie Doughty or uh, Giles or whoever it is that's putting them in and the likes of Sheffield United, someone like Fabianski, who's much more assertive off his line, whether that's claiming crosses in the air or whether it's punching them more assertively out. Because I think, again, there was moments in the game against Brighton, as good as he was, that Ariola kind of flapped a weak hand at a ball and we were un- we were lucky not to be punished. I think there was one where he sort of palmed it to his left and uh, I can't remember who it was, was unable to get a, sh- a-, a good shot away and he sort of made the save and was like, okay, cool, <laughs> calm down a bit or let's chill out. Um, but in those instances, Fabianski would be coming to punch them out and, and I mean, on occasion, we'd spark a counter from it because someone would be there to receive the ball and we're off and away. Um, so yeah, I think it's a good point you make and, and it's a very good position for us to be in when you think back to a time when the alternative was Roberto. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, juggling between Roberto and David Martin, who is a legend and will always <laughs> yeah. be a legend. Yeah. But <laughs> it's a different kettle of fish. And, um, and yeah, particularly, I think... I know I've been hung up on this and I've said it a few times on the pod and I know I'm repeating myself now, but we, I cannot watch us lose to Brentford again because of the relentless balls into the box issue. And I know that we've lost to Brentford previously with Fabianski being the starting keeper, but at least I think him being there over Ariola would help with that problem a little bit. Would just, just assist in claiming a few times, but also just the com- communication with the centre-backs, which has been an area that's gone wrong a few times this season. It's clearly a little bit stronger from those crosses where it's not entirely certain whose ball it is, whether it's one of the centre-backs who's coming or whether it's the goalkeeper who's coming. I think, you know, especially Brentford's long throws is what I'm thinking of because of the angle that they come in. Yeah, <laughs> That's where I really want Fabianski over, yeah. over Ariola. We'll see. We'll see if it happens in the second half of the season. I'd be surprised if it did, but <laughs> we can hope. Anyway, look, look, let's talk about um, attacking against Brighton because it was a, a big issue after the game. A lot of, lot of chat about it. And, and I apologise to people who are listening who maybe would have wanted us to talk more about Arsenal. All, our, all I'll really add to the chat about Arsenal is just to say the effort level from the whole team was exceptional. Um, and if we're going to shout out one player from the match, I think that probably has to be Kudus, um, because his individual performance is carrying, um, was just on another level. Um, he was so, so good in that game. And I think he kind of exemplifies how with Moyes' way of playing against these kind of teams in away fixtures or whatever, it is going to go wrong more often than it goes right. But when you find that Kudus, when you find that guy like Lingard or Kudus, that 
that relentless carrying threat that finishes almost all of the chances they get, that's when you're going to start to find that the results turn in your favour. Um, and we've got that now, which makes me quite confident about the second half of the season when he returns from 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 AFCON. We're going to have to play these kind of fixtures again, similar kind of fixtures, where we're going to have to have a low block and, and deal with teams having a, an awful lot of possession. And if he can perform to that level in those games, we might have a decent chance of picking up results because we'll create chances purely because of his influence on on, on the team. Um, anyway, on to Brighton. Uh, and, and again, apologies for not going into more depth on, on Arsenal, but there are really some interesting things we want to speak about from the Brighton game, particularly because the theme of a lot of the pods this month is going to be January and outgoings and, and, and squad building and, and who's going to be leaving, who we think should be leaving. There are a lot of points that come out of the Brighton game that relate um, to that. And one of them is to speak about the first half and how actually I think for as much as the attack didn't um, function to its best level or anywhere near as well as it's functioned in previous fixtures, I don't think we were that bad in the first half. I think we created good opportunities. I think the game was pretty even. And I think it, we had good openings either side of half time I would say actually the sort of the last 20 minutes of the first half 20-25 minutes of the first half I'd say we played really quite well I'd say Brighton had the first 20 minutes of the game and maybe for the first 5-10 minutes of the second half I think we we created another couple of good openings Suchek had a very good chance um, which in classic West Ham fashion when you're low blocking if you get the 1-0 the game completely changes the team is the your opposition is forced to take more risk that then creates opportunities to create more chances on the break um so that's when you start to get into the game state where you start to think, ah, you know, this is West Ham's bread and butter. They look really, really good. Um, now, uh, unfortunately, that didn't happen. Um, but Pablo Fornals is, is, is kind of coming for a lot of flack after the game. Both wingers have, and we're going to talk about both of them. Um, but if you're comparing the roles that they perform, Fornals being asked to do very much Pakatar light, uh, coming into central areas, receiving the ball, playing forward, getting us going forward and actually being really active from a defensive perspective. I think we wanted to to give him some credit and say that actually we felt that he passed that test as a B option for that kind of player in the squad. Um, he did an okay job of, of performing that role and um, and created some good moments for us going forward and, and more importantly was, was really, really secure um, defensively for us. Yeah, I think so. And I think the Pakatar light um, tag, I think, is a good one because I think I think part of the reason he's come into some slack is that he's not... Uh, the drop-off is obvious and he's not been able to do the Pakatar role, but Pakatar is a world-class player and Pablo Fornals, as much as I love him, is not. So to expect him to step up and there be no significant drop-off is ridiculous. Um, and, and there's not really many squads in the league that could have a world-class player be out injured and replace him without any drop-off. I mean, read into it, whatever. There was a lot of um, like lines about it last season, but when Saliba dropped out, everyone said that the reason Arsenal dropped off and weren't able to win the title is because they couldn't replace Saliba with a player of his quality. And and everyone accepted that as as the wisdom, and, and we should take a similar approach to um, to Pakatar's absence. But yeah, I think for now, in terms of filling out the function that Pakatar does in terms of drifting into central areas, being the sort of second phase receiver in the middle of the park, looking to get on the ball and looking to play us forward, um, I thought he did it well. And then out of possession, like you say, he, he came in with a few ball recoveries. I think he won a couple of interceptions. And generally, in terms of trigger press and stuff like that, he he 
put in a fairly solid performance. Again, he didn't necessarily have the tenacity and sort of energy levels that we've come to expect of Pakatar, but also he's not match fit. Um, and all, all think, the highlights, like nor, you, you yeah. know, nor, nor those incredible defence splitting through balls or, or yeah. whatever, but like you say, it was sort of solid, wasn't it? It was not. Yeah, exactly. I think he he led the team in terms of passes received in the middle third. Um, so clearly he was the player that was looking to get on the ball, something that we've often said that we've had a, a absence of at West Ham. And we've been so frustrated in our inability to play through the thirds because we don't have either A, a centre-back who is willing to play those passes into the channels and instead just looks to bypass it with a long switch, or we don't have midfielders that are constantly looking to get on the ball when Pakatar isn't on the pitch. As earlier as a few weeks back on this podcast, we were talking about how the likes of Ward-Prowse isn't, isn't showing enough at the time in those phases when he needs to be the primary progressor. And to see Pablo Fornals come in and look eager, to be honest, to get on the ball and to take on that mantle of the primary receiver in the middle of the park was impressive. And then also when he had the ball, he was leading the team in terms of passes into the final third. And like you say, yeah, OK, he didn't... He wasn't playing passes into the final third to the level of Pakatai. He wasn't unlocking the Brighton defence. He wasn't playing runners through. But he also didn't have a Kudus to find. And he didn't have yes. Bowen in the same form as he has been because he didn't have the supporting cast. So it, it's not it's not linear. It's it's all interrelated. And the fact that Fornals didn't do the Pakatai job of playing in and sort of splitting defences is A, because he's not Pakatai and there's not many players in the league. In fact, in fact, I think we said on the last episode, I don't know if the numbers are true, but Pakatai was leading in Europe's top five leagues in terms of def- defence splitting passes. So it, it's actually fair to say that no one in Europe could do that job uh, this season. So to expect Fornals to do it is, is, is ludicrous. But yeah, I think he, uh, he got a lot of unnecessary flack. And I think considering how little game time he's had, um, and to go from being one of the first names on the team sheet and one of the most well-loved players in the squad to quickly transition to this player who's kind of on the peripheries and there's rumours about him wanting out and us wanting to sell is difficult. And I think for him to step in and put in a performance like that, it wasn't he wasn't tearing up any trees for sure, but it was commendable and I think we have to give him a little bit of credit. Yeah, I think the point you made about runners is the most important one, which, you know, I think I described you know, him without Antonio as a bit, a bit like having a sandwich without the filling. You know, it's, <laughs> you, can, you, 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 you can't really expect defence splitting passes from your inverting winger who's coming into central areas to be the creative player in the team if you haven't got the dynamic presence supporting the striker. And that takes us on to talking about Ben Rama who I would say had a decent performance, similar to Fornals, commendable, mm-hmm. did an okay job, had a couple of, uh, of exciting moments. They mostly came in the 90 seconds before he was substituted. Um, but he has to, because of the way the system functions, because of the lack of possession, because of the lack of time spent in the final third, he has to hit that Kudus, Lingard, Bowen level of dynamic winger when the other wing is not going to be doing that, Fornals is not going to be doing that. He's not going to be making runs in behind to support the striker. He has to hit that kind of level in order to make the system function and in order to create the kind of chances we need to create in the final third on the break. So as much as he had some good moments in the game, he didn't do that. He didn't f- find runs beyond the striker. He didn't combine with the striker at all, really. He didn't even when he got into positions on the break where he was in positive areas, 
He turned round a lot, wasn't able to beat a man or would face up his man, try and wait for an opportunity to get, get past them, not find that opportunity and turn back round and play back to Emerson. That's not necessarily the wrong thing to do. He's more that style of winger. That's what I'd say is more his, his game is, is keeping the ball and, 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 um, you know, maybe that's something that's changed in his game a little bit under Moyes. He's become more of a sort of retention type winger rather than a bit of a scary risk taker who takes risks in really bad areas. Um, <laughs> but he, he just wasn't able to bring the kind of level as a dynamic winger necessary to make the system function to its to its best. And I think that's part of the reason why we're looking at this performance, this team performance and saying, Bowen didn't have his best game up front, despite looking really convincing before that. Um, and Fournals has come in and played the sort of inverting winger creative player type and looked quite quiet when it comes to what they actually created in the final third. I think a lot of that comes down to where's the guy making the runs? <laughs> there yep. isn't one. Um, so when when we, we, we take that on to sort of discuss which of the two would you move on? Because I don't think we're going to buy two wingers because Corne's almost definitely going to leave because he doesn't get on in this game. What's the point in having a guy like him if he can't get on in a game mm-hmm. like this? I mean, t- literally having a conversation about lacking runners in behind and Corne, his whole game is built around doing that. And if he can't find a way onto the pitch, even for two minutes, there's no point in having him in the squad so I'm almost certain as I'm sure most people listening will be that he will be moved on I can't see us buying two so it's going to be one of Ben Rama or Fornals in the squad again next season which of the two do you sell I think the need for a dynamic winger is more important to the way that we play and because um, Ben Rama is closer to that than Fornals is and not going to Ben Rama is not going to be able to do the inverting winger Pakatar kind of role in the same way that Fornells will do up Pakita Light, as we discussed, I would suggest that Ben Rama, and, and, and additionally because of his resale value, which is theoretically going to be considerably higher than Fornells is, um, will be, he would be the guy to move on. And if there's an opportunity to sell him in this January window, this is the best chance, I think. This is a yeah. really, really good opportunity, a good time to try and find a buyer for Said Ben Rama. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Um, and I wonder if maybe there's a deal there to be made with Leon, who have supposedly expressed interest and also said that Ryan Cherky is available, um, who would be a lot closer stylistically to what Kudus is than Ben Rama is, I would say. I think one of the key differences between Kudus and Ben Rama and, and, and why we struggle with that transition when Kudus isn't there and Ben Rama is, is that Kudus is much more willing to take a player on the outside and the inside. And I think when you see him receive the ball, he's so much more comfortable running directly into the centre of the pitch. We see it against United for his goal, right? He carries all the way into the centre of the pitch on the off chance that there's a runner alongside him that by dragging him into that direction, the runner can run into the space that he's vacated and he's got a return pass on. What materialises is, oh, actually, instead, Kudus is going to show his two-footedness by cutting inside again and then shooting on his weak foot across goal into the bottom corner. And Ben Rama, I mean, there's various stages in that move that Ben Rama wouldn't be able to pull off in terms of shooting on his weak foot and stuff. But primarily, I think my biggest frustration is that 
he is far too easy to defend against because you know nine times out of ten what he's going to do. He's going to carry as far as he can on the on the outside before cutting in onto his stronger foot and looking to drift in and get a shot off, which he does every, every time. Whereas there's so many instances where if he could slow it up and then carry on in the same direction by taking them on the outside, he would have the defender like in a real sticky position and then firing a cutback and across the byline. And I think... There's... And even sorry to jump in, but even if he's not able to get the cut back in, we're so good from corners that those situations exactly. are good for us yeah. anyway because you might win a corner. Um, yep. you're, in fact, you're very likely to win a corner if the defender manages to, to to match up with you and go down to the byline. So, I mean, to encapsulate what you're saying, I think it's just directness, isn't it? It's just that yep. willingness to be incredibly direct in the way that you play, right? Yeah, and I think and yeah, that combined with the intelligence of knowing where to run depending on where the teammates around you are going to run I think for Ben Rama it is very much he tends to receive the ball on the left flank and it's just carry it straight down the left flank and then the retreating defense can go oh well sweet we can all just run in a straight line as well because whoever's marking Ben Rama can carry on running and we'll just get into position and track the runners whereas if Ben Rama carries basically towards the other defender that isn't marking him the two defenders have then got a decision to make as to who's responsible for him when that changeover happens when they shift the responsibility to the center back rather than the fullback and in that shift the our Ben Rama's teammate can be like okay sweet there's a gap there for me to exploit but those situations don't materialize enough because it's so obvious that the fullback is only ever going to have to track Ben Rama and don't you also think that when you see Ben Rama have those moments where he thinks, right, fuck it, I'm going direct, his head drops. Yeah. He, do, he, he does not look up once he's decided. Mm-hmm. It's the, the only outcome is going to be the shot because mm-hmm. his head goes down. He's not, and he's not then looking for the kind of runs that Bowen makes that Kudus might be able to find or a player dropping into space. I don't know whether that's Ward Prowse or Pakatar in other games or, you know, four now in this kind of game where you might be able to create a different kind of opportunity. He often goes super direct, head down and shoots, or he's head down trying to go super direct and then loses the ball because he's not actually dribbling into the into space. He's dribbling into trouble. Um, yeah. And you have these situations sometimes, I think, where he goes head down. I mean, it, I almost feel for him because in a way they become quite good as a retention style winger so he like he go heads down try to dribble into and be threatening being direct and then he will get his head up and think right now nah, i'll just turn around and go yeah. back again um because he sort of gets lost in those moments so I, look i think he's i think he's a good player i think he will be very useful in a different kind of setup and a different kind of team maybe i don't think he has shown at premier league level that he's quite got the kind of verve that you need from a winger to really have the upside that you're looking from that kind of player um he will be good for someone i i have a, arrived at the point where I, I don't think that's us i don't i don't yep. think he's going to be that for us um and i think he's one of the guys where there's enough of a price tag there where you can actually say it's worth selling him because we might be able to bring in someone that maybe equally isn't particularly expensive, but is better suited to us. And it's going to do the mm-hmm. kind of thing that we need um, and have the kind of profile that's more important um, to us. And to, and, and to sort of move on, I'm thinking I, I need to find a way to, to put breaks in this podcast and we're doing really good. We're rattling through really quickly. <laughs> so they're like, where am I going to put the breaks? Um, but I'm going to, I'm going to move on from there to, to say as well, because it's the next point in the pod plan is when we come to the second half and there's been a lot of discussion about Mabama coming on and and it not really working for him and and, and people 
really disappointingly actually like writing him off and saying, well, he's clearly not good enough. Um, there's something that Bowen in the first half has in common with Mbama in the second half, which is that when Ben Rama was doing the direct dynamic winger role for Bowen, it didn't work. Ben Rama wasn't able to get into the kind of positions and provide the kind of support that the striker needs in this system with such low possession coming from so deep, as you will, against a team like Brighton. And in the second half, Bowen's performance didn't improve when he moved to the right. So Bowen wasn't able to do exactly the same job, the direct dynamic winger role, to give the kind of support to Mbama that Mbama needs to be an effective kind of striker again, when the ball is coming from so deep with such little possession across the match against a team like Brighton. And actually, maybe I hadn't put it in the pod plan, ridiculous. Maybe it was too obvious, but this is a point to say, you have to play that way against Brighton. If there's, mm-hmm. if there's, if there's a question mark for, for some listeners over, were we too passive against Brighton? Did we not engage enough? Brighton wants you to engage and they've taken the piss out of us when we've tried to engage yeah. for a very long time now in the in the Premier League, an extended period, they have made a mockery of our defensive system when we have attempted to press it. Um, it is there is quite literally a mountain of evidence over the the, the, the Premier League period that Brighton have had post Hewton um, to say not engaging against them with David Moyes as the coach is clearly the best way. For, for us to play against them. And we proved that in the first half of the season um, where we showed with our best players available. And I do think, you know, same goes for Brighton. Brighton will think if we had our best players available, if we had those wingers, as I was discussing earlier, if it's not James Milner receiving in the, in the left wing, we would have exploited those moments and been able to score goals against West Ham. Same for us. If we had our best players available, if Pakatar and Kudus were there, even if Antonio was fit as well, I think Antonio would have helped massively for this kind of fixture. Um, we would have scored goals. And in fact, I think we would have scored several goals against Brighton because of how exposed they leave themselves defensively in lots of situations when they, when they get really high up the pitch. Um, and actually, I think particularly so with the defenders that they've got, you know, someone like Adam Webster maybe doesn't cover himself in glory when he has to engage aggressively quickly um, to stop a counterattack developing. That's not his best um, ability. So just to bring it back to Mbama and say... Um, I think it's really early to, to jump to any conclusions about it. I just think the conditions of the game were not conducive to a striker playing well because we didn't have the kind of support they need. Um, and again, that's why I think it's a real shame that Antonio, he looks like he's going to be back for Bristol City, which we became after this poll comes out. Uh, it'd be probably pretty soon after this poll comes out because it's a big editing job for me. Um, but it would have been great for us, I think, if he just if we managed to squeeze him in um, a week earlier just because it would have been a huge impact on this match, when we're talking about second half pressure and how much better Brighton were in the second half, a lot of people diagnosed that as Mabama coming on and us being worse after Mabama came on. Uh, but in a surprise turn of events for the West Ham Breakdown podcast, we're talking about Thomas Suchek and James Will Prowse again. <laughs> and um, <laughs> they swapped, didn't they? They swapped in the last yep. sort of 25 minutes of the game. Um, and unsurprisingly, our performance went down the drain as soon as that happened. Yeah, yeah, hundred um, percent. It it all yeah it, it all changed really. Um, I think for various reasons, and I think they're interrelated. I think obviously, like you say, we didn't engage particularly aggressively against Brighton because we know that we shouldn't. But 
when the ball started to creep towards us um, in the first half, James Ward-Browse, being the more advanced uh, of the midfielders, was able to usher the ball into the wide areas well by knowing when to step out and when to trigger the press at the right moments. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry, if you heard me, was press to reset, not press yeah. to win the ball, press to reset. Yeah. Yeah, um, and it and it stifles Brighton's build up, and and basically it's us uh, dictating the way that they play and not allowing them to play on their own terms, which is how they have played against us previously and smashed us. Which is why the Brighton hoodoo, the Brighton curse, is there. And uh, a switch in tactics by not engaging this season has seen us take four out of a possible six points against our bogey team. So. That was good in the first half, but then in the second half, um, sorry, the the flip side of that is that when Brighton did get into uh, towards our area, having someone like Suchek defending the edge of the box and, and not allowing Brighton to get into zone 14, which is the area in between the goalposts on the edge of the box, um, having Suchek marshalling that area with Edson Alvarez is, is brilliant and probably two of the better players in the league in that respect. If you're going to sit deep and just step out and stop people from receiving the ball there, um, you lose that in the second half. You lose Ward-Prowse's intelligence in terms of pressing to reset Brighton's build-up, but you also lose Suchek's defensive awareness and ability in terms of defending zone 14. Um, And that is why in the second half, we concede 13 shots in central areas um, compared to just two in the first half. So as you can see, (laughs) the wheels of the system start to fall off. Brighton suddenly begin to access zone 14 much more frequently and begin to frankly pepper us with shots from central areas and thankfully in Ariola we have a keeper who is adept at saving shots uh, in bottom corners down to his right I think was the shot against from Lalana who sort of found the corner and he managed to keep it out um, but also close range shots um, whether that's from Ferguson whether that's headers from the centre halves he's quite good at relying on his reflexes to defend the goal and I think that is where Ariola really came into his own and, and, and won the point for us, I would say, um, because I think if we didn't have him in that, keeping some of those shots out, we almost certainly would have conceded and would have come away with nothing. I think the main issue for, for Ward-Prowse, he's a, he's a really good player. He, he has had a really good season for us. He just does not scan when he's in those deep yeah. areas. He just does not check his shoulder anywhere near enough. Um, he is good, as we've discussed before, when the game, when his defensive attitude towards the game is about what's ahead of him. Um, rather than what's behind him. And similarly, uh, we often focus when we talk about this on Ward-Prowse's limitations as a a deeper midfielder. Suchek is exactly the same further forward. He is better when he's checking his shoulder. He is always late when he's trying to reach stuff that's, that's, that's ahead of him. He's always late. He doesn't anticipate anywhere near fast enough. He then jumps and then always gets beaten um, in those situations. So it's easy to progress to the final third because he's not good at his job when he's further forward. And then it's easy to get into good areas in the final third because Ward-Prowse is not good at his job in deeper areas. I don't understand why we do it. I get mm-hmm. that there's the the, the 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 upside as such of, okay, we'll get Suchet for the forward. We're struggling in the striker area. We're not physically, we're struggling in the striker area. We're not winning enough duels um, and we've not got enough box presence. So we'll put Suchet further forward, gives us more box presence, more of a physical presence further forward. I get that. But if you cannot do the bread and butter of the system, which is stopping good shooting opportunities in good areas, I think that's pointless because the upside Suchek is going to give you from 10 is not tantamount to two, three goals, which is the kind of chance <coughs> level you concede when you move him out of the areas and put Ward-Prowse there. It's not a balanced yep. switch. So if you wanted to do it, the only thing that I could understand 
around doing it is if you move Sujit forward, there has to be some other guy in the squad. You have to have another six in the squad yep. who comes on in those situations and Ward-Prowse goes off. You can't keep both on the pitch. doesn't make mm-hmm. sense if you move them, um, if you switch their roles. Um, and actually, very briefly, it is worth saying that I think that whole sort of 25-minute fiasco at the end of the game just made it incredibly obvious that we need the player who, who did... Um, it was a really good contribution on Twitter. I'm really sorry because I can't remember who it was, um, but said the Noble or Lanzini role is exactly what I've been describing when I talk about a midfielder who needs the ball. And that's a really good way of putting it. It's not something that I thought about myself. It's so obvious. I'm almost disappointed I hadn't thought of it uh, myself, but it's a great shout. Um, and it's that role of 20 minutes at the end of games. Noble used to come on as a 10 and just take the ball all the time off the, off the defence. Confident on it, wanted it, and played the ball into the final third pretty accurately, very regularly good progressor uh, even very late in his career really really good um, progressor Lanzini exactly the same um, <clears throat> and that's what we need I think we need to look for a midfielder who can come in and just give you know where Ward Prowse doesn't have that second phase half turn receiving that ability to turn and play forward from deeper areas we need someone who can do that the issue I think is because of the midfield makeup and because how much Suchek offers in terms of upside box presence both sides uh, defensive corners, attacking corners, Ward Prowse corners, um, and Alvarez, who I just, if he's fit, isn't going to come off in these kind of games. I, unfortunately, I think that player can't just be a Noble or Lanzini now when we look to recruit. They have to either be lanky and therefore a threat from set pieces and good at defending them, or they have to be able to take them themselves. Um, so that's the profile. And actually, I think that creates quite a fun job for us for the next pod because that's yeah. there's not many players who are going to be both of those uh, or one of those things and 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 a good half-time receiver and someone who's going to take the ball a lot um one of the players i had in mind was was joey vimman because his set piece upside wants the ball plays in those areas more comfortable defensively um disappointed because it's become a premium option now it wasn't last <laughs> um when i really wanted him <laughs> so yeah um but anyway let's move on uh, and talk about Tilo Guerra, which is the last thing we want to talk about on this podcast, he looks like he is going. Um, <clears throat> almost set now. Fabrizio Romano, I think, has done his his famous "Here we go." Here we go. Um, tweet. Uh, the, the details that we have publicly are five hundred thousand pound loan. Uh, I think it's an eleven million quid mandatory buy clause. We don't know the terms of that buy clause. I imagine if they've been willing to commit to a 500k loan, he's going to play um, and therefore meet the, the, the mandatory buy clause. I'd be shocked if it didn't happen, um, especially given Kara's situation and the reasons for him to want to leave. I can't see him then rotting on Monaco's bench and not meeting the mandatory buy clause and arriving back at West Ham. If it does happen, turn it over to you, Cal. I think this is a really, really good sale, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I think... Uh, all the signs suggest, whether fans like it or not, that Moyes is probably going to get an extension. I think it's more likely than not. Um, that's what the rumours have been the past week. Um, I think even the insinuation by Moyes post the Arsenal game, I think, where he was kind of 
jokerly talking about how they're going to sit down and, and talk about it and stuff like that. Then the Suchek contract extension as well for the next three years. I don't know that we would extend that contract if there wasn't an obvious future for him at the club. And I think if we were going to replace Moyes with a more possession-based manager, Suchek would be one of the first names on the chopping block. So you probably would make it easier for yourself to sell him by not making his value rise by extending his contract, if that makes sense. Um, and I think... With that in mind, if that is the way we're going, then whilst the future for Suchek looks bright, the future for Tilo Kera is borderline non-existent. Um, the only time he really held any value in a, in a sort of David Moyes system was when we were flirting with the idea of transitioning to a three-centre-back system with wing-backs when we were linked to the likes of Philip Kostic. Um, and that experiment failed or was given up on, at least, I think, Mark Warburton leaving didn't buy the maybe. wing backs. Yeah, exa- exactly. We tried to do it, and and we spent a whole half a season talking on the podcast on Analytics United about how there's just no wing backs here. It doesn't yeah. make any sense. <laughs> yeah, um, and I think that would have been where his utility was. I think everyone would probably agree that is listening that he sort of falls somewhere between a right back and a centre back, but is neither one nor the other. I, w- I wouldn't feel comf- confident saying which of those positions is his best position, um, which I think is why it made sense having him as a lateral centre-back option. Um, but it seems unlikely that that's what we're going to play. And also, he's not going to feature enough in a fullback system for us to keep him around on his wages and with his uh, value. So I think fair play. I think the move to Monaco will suit him well. I think he'll get a lot more time on the ball in that system. Um, he's unlikely to get time on the ball here, which is something that he needs with his skill set. He's a, he's confident on the ball. He's a good passer, um, but he's also not six foot four and he's crap at defending his back post. So <laughs> David Moyes is not going to, is not going to vibe with that. And also it frees up squad spaces, doesn't it? And like I say, if we're going to lean into this David Moyes system with Kara gone, with Ogbonna getting older, um, a centre-back seems an obvious addition to the squad um, and you can't afford to strengthen in that area to the level that we would like to strengthen, particularly given Zuma's fitness concerns as well, if care is in the squad. But now we've added to the kitty, so to speak, and the, we can now afford to spend a bit more on a premium centre-back option, um, which is what we need to do if we want to try and strike that middle ground between a David Moyes defender who is also confident on the ball because they're the unicorns, they're the premium ones that come with a higher price tag because they're so much rarer. Worth also saying with regards to his future, I'm pretty sure Monaco have been playing 3-4-3 this season mostly. Um, So, I mean, that just works for him. I can see how he immediately slots into that system as a right centre-back and and offers progressive upside Um, in a league like Ligue 1 as well. I can just see how the whole thing suits Monaco and Kara really well and ultimately us because like you said he's neither a right back nor a centre back really certainly not in the Premier League and um, as much as we you know you talk about David Moyes not getting renewed I think people made a really good point on Twitter to me as well today um, saying yeah he's not suited to David Moyes but arguably is he suited to the Premier League under any manager with the with the physicality of the league with the amount of crosses into the box against most teams is he going to cope under most managers? Probably not. Uh, well, I think as well, the way the league's going, we've got centre-backs playing at full-back in so many of the best teams these days. So, it's, And big centre-backs playing yeah, at full-back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I just think, uh, you know, a smaller centre-back who's not 
particularly physical. Um, it just doesn't doesn't make sense. He had his moments. I think it was a huge mistake when he became the first choice right back. I think it's a big part of what went wrong um, last season. I'm pretty sure there was a, a Czech media story regarding, you know, not sure whether it's true or not, but um, talking about Sufal, I think Sufal said in an interview that, that Moyes actually apologised to him for having... Uh, <laughs> Uh, taken him out of the team and, and said it was a mistake. Uh, so I have no idea whether how much validity there is that if he did, he was right to, because I think it was a massive mistake. Um, we were trying to possess the, the ball more often uh, for longer periods of games and arrive in the final third and sustain pressure for longer periods. And Kara was conducive to that in some ways because he helped our build up. He was like just anti rest defense though, because well, no, rest defense is not the not, not the way of playing. Anti transition defense because I I have horrendous memories of those Leicester and Palace games, and what what I think about when I think of those games are situations where Kera was not physically able to recover with the pace of counters in the Premier League from right back, and then also couldn't you couldn't shift him inside because he wouldn't be able to deal with the aerials as a centre back in a fall. So, um, yeah. Pleased that we're moving him on and really pleased that in those conditions when he was exposed really in several matches last season in, in the Premier League, his value hasn't hasn't dropped compared to what we we, we spent on him. Um, we've managed to recruit almost everything, um, which I think is a great bit of work, we assume, um, by by Tim Stighton, um, because this is incredibly un-Sullivan, selling a player uh, before... It becomes not, I mean, beyond obvious, you know, usually the Sullivan maneuver is like value has almost completely disappeared by the time a player is is shown the door. Um, So, uh, yeah, I would say this is, this is a really positive sign. Um, And given we were talking about Ben Rama and and other players, I mean, Danny Ings is another um, players in the squad who you would look to move on um, sooner rather than later. Um, and and given that this is always going to be an issue for any football club, not every player you bring in is going to be a success. You're going to have uh, misses. Um, if we start to adopt this approach where there's a miss, we identify it quickly and go, right, okay, let's move on, get that player moved on to a club where they're going to be able to perform to a better level. They're going to be happier and we're going to get some money back in and look to be able to buy someone that can perform better for us. Um, that's just the healthy way of running a football club and if we can start to do better on those outgoings it will give us a better shot in terms of our ingoings because of ffp um and because we're bringing more money in and we'll have more money to therefore spend on players coming in but also just make squads better um because you have less unhappy players who are not suited to the way the team plays yeah yeah 100 it's it's a super positive step and something we've longed for um since since we started doing this a few years ago really i think we've been disappointed with some of the departures um but it extends beyond that as well there's so many times where we just i mean i think i saw this week that felipe anderson has been linked to juventus on account of the form that he's exhibited in Serie A since leaving us i think we sold him for three million or something like that to say. And we bought him for, I think, nearly 30, 25 mil, was it? So that's the sort of thing. It's like his value was still there. It's just that we couldn't see it because he wasn't doing well for us. So it was kind of a cut our losses. He's clearly crap vibe when it's, I think, Stighton's job is to convince people that 
the value is still there. It's just we are not able to get it out of him. But hey, look at the system you play. Here's where he slots in, which is, um, I imagine, how the carer situation goes. Obviously, Monaco will have had some interest. I don't know whether we approach them if, to see if they had interest, vice versa, but it's still a negotiation. You've still got to convince them. And I think with starting at the helm now, not only has he got a better eye for talent, obviously, than Sullivan, and that that's talent within our squad, can see it when we can't. Yeah. Um, but also talent elsewhere in terms of who can fit into the team. Um, I think, yeah, it, it puts us in good stead and gives and, me and, confidence. And placing loans like you were just describing is such an important part of recouping um, value. And if you think about Felipe Anderson, as you described, that three million sale was after a failed loan. Um, <laughs> yeah. Our struggles to sell Vlasic, that was after uh, a yeah. not completely failed loan, but you know, had a good start. But after that, a pretty unsuccessful loan. Um, so to pick out a team who are playing a three-back system that probably suits him in a league that probably makes sense for him, mm-hmm. that's good management. Um, and and like I say, it's not just about making money. It's also about making individuals happy. You know, the people are important. <laughs> and um, I think it's just a good, really, really good thing for the club if we can start looking after players in that way better and therefore looking after our squad and our books better. <laughs> um, that's That's running a football club well and that's not something we have been known to do <laughs> um for for quite a while uh, so a really good sign lots of positives on this podcast um it's actually a really fun one to do lots of things to talk about and um yep. i think people will be maybe somewhat concerned now going into a period where we're missing players at afcon and and what happens to the way that we attack no kudos big loss Hopefully Pakatar comes back fit nice and quick. Um, but I'm going to be positive. I'm going to say Antonio's had a big break and um, and hasn't been rushed back, which is brilliant. And uh, yeah, if we can get him performing to a good level, even if it's over a short period of time while Kudus is away, um, hopefully that will be enough to give us a good platform, give Bowen a good enough platform to score goals for us. And then it's all about whether we can continue the defensive performances that we've managed over the last um, few games. If we can shut teams out, because uh, we didn't really talk about that. We didn't hype up enough, I think. The, the, obviously, we talked about how good the defense has been, but hype up the clean sheets and the fact that that wasn't really something we were doing up until very recently. If we can do that and Bowen can just nab the goals that he was nabbing even last season um, yeah. when things were not working out with enough of a platform provided by Antonio... I can see us picking up a good results. Maybe we're going to be back in a situation where we were, you know, end of November, start of December, when everyone was complaining about the performances, but the results are, are still coming in. That's where I'd ultimately think would be a good outcome for us for the next few weeks. Um, so fingers crossed for that. Thanks, Cal, uh, for another sensational appearance on the West Ham Breakdown. And, <laughs> Pleasure uh, as always. <laughs> Uh, check out analyticsunited.co.uk forward slash members I keep forgetting to say it on almost every pod but please do and um, (laughs) we will catch you in a week's time uh, after some football match watching for me because I've got to get through a lot of video uh, because we're going to be talking about players um, that we should be looking at Um, and again I will reiterate I know I've said this several times anyone you want us to look at DM me message us on Twitter um, let us know um we, I think we'll skirt around whatever the links are in, in the media. I think we'll stick to the players you've asked us to do and the players we're interested in because it becomes quite difficult if we're being dragged around trying to look at all of the current links. Um, there's a lot of 
lot of work that goes into actually trying to get a sense of a player. So um, doing that on the fly makes it more difficult. Anyway, I'm rambling now. Thanks for tuning in and, um, and we'll catch you in a week's time. See you later. Sports Social Podcast Network.